Exodus chapter 23 as we actually conclude uh, the chapter this morning, verses 20 to 33. Uh, normally we stand when we read God's word since I we had you stand for that song, which we normally don't do. And since I just told you to sit down, uh, you may remain seated uh, as we read God's word uh, together. Uh, Exodus chapter 23, uh, beginning in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an, en- an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw them into confusion, throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make you all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, You, O Holy Spirit, uh, inspired the writing of these words. Uh, You inspired the words themselves. Uh, You have preserved them now uh, over 3,000-ish years for us. And so we pray that you would now be at work in them and through them and by them. Use them to strengthen our faith, to comfort our affliction, to point us to you. And to grow in us a hope for the world that is yet to come. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, I trust you know Woody Guthrie's song, uh, This Land. You know, this land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island, it goes on and on. Um, Woody Guthrie wrote that in, in 1940. And, and there's, there's political commentary going on in that song that has nothing to do with the sermon. So don't, if you happen to know that stuff, just ignore it. Um, uh, but the reality is um, the, the song really sort of serves as an outline for this passage this morning. 
because, you know, Guthrie sets out boundaries for uh, this land. And he says this land is, is ours. It's yours. It's mine. And, um, and it serves as an outline for uh, this passage this morning. We are, God's concluded the, um, the case laws uh, this the end of the book of the covenant, the the application and implication of the Ten Commandments for God's people in Israel. Um, you know we've we've seen um, how they they apply to personal property and personal injury and and my critters and all sorts of things. Um, those who are, are are strangers and aliens in the land, those who are down and out and hurting and poor, and and even um, Sabbath and celebrations. Along the way. And here. God is reminding his people. That they are going somewhere. That they're headed to. The promised land. They're headed to. A new home. A new place. And he's promising. He's making this promise to his people. That it will indeed. Be theirs. Notice first of all. He's talking about this land. You notice at verse 31, there are boundary markers, actual geographical, geographic places, Red Sea, Sea of the Philistines, Wilderness, Euphrates. Uh, they're actual physical, geographic, topographic places on an actual map. God's not taking his people just somewhere. Just any old place. But he has a very specific destination in mind. He has a, a very specific geographic place that he's taking to his people to. In the east, southeast, there's this border of the Red Sea. Uh, in the west, there's the Mediterranean. In the south is the wilderness. And in the north, northeast, the Euphrates River. You know, from California to the New York Islands, right? I mean, Woody actually lays out boundary markers, right? This land is your land, it's my land. From California to the New York, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. He sets out sort of boundaries for where the song, the, the country, the people he's singing about in his song. And it's almost as if Woody Guthrie could have written these words from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, from the Euphrates to the wilderness, you know, you have um, you have in your yard somewhere you have some piece of metal um, that that tells the world where your property line is. Uh, if you don't know where your piece of metal is, uh, then at least on your deed or something there there'll be a GPS point, right? You don't need generalities like a Red Sea. You've actually got a, a GPS point. And, and, and your deed will tell you if you'll start at this particular point and if you'll turn and face this direction and go this many feet, then there'll be another metal stake in the ground. And then if you'll turn and now walk this many feet in this other direction, you'll find another one. And it, it borders your land. It tells you this land is your land. This particular piece of property belongs to you. God is taking... Israel to a very specific, particular piece of property marked out by metal stakes, GPS points. Their deed will actually say from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, from the wilderness to 
the Euphrates River. He's talking about this land. But it's not just this land geographically. It's also this land promissorily. Can you do that? Um, See, there's a catch. The land isn't uninhabited. That's a double negative. You have to work at this, right? And that's on purpose, right? It isn't uninhabited. There, There are already people there in the land. It belongs to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and all the Ites. Right. The, the, just you, we summarize. I summarize. You're going to hear the ites. I'm not going to read the list every single time. But all the ites: Amorites, Perizzites, Hittites, Canaanites, Hivites, whoever they are. The reality is, they've actually been living here for ages. Like they they didn't they're not they didn't just show up. Let me show you this. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15, because. This actually is a huge part of God's covenant promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. You do remember the three things that God promises to Abraham. People, place, and his presence. Right? I, I promise you descendants. I'm going to give you a place to call your own. And I'm going to be with you. I'll be God with you. And, and circumcision isn't, isn't until 17. right? So make sure you have that sort of timing down. But in Genesis 15. On verse 18. On that day. And this is God passes through the cut up pieces. right? There's the cutting of the covenant. The pieces are cut up. And God alone, Abraham doesn't do it. God alone, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed through these pieces. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the, oh, all the ites, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. Oh, there's a, non, a non-ite. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. All the ites. They're already there. They're there in Abraham's day. And now, 400 plus years later, 500-ish years later, they're still there. God is taking Israel not just to this land geographically, but to the land he promised to their forefather Abraham. In other words, what we read in Exodus 23 is God telling Israel, I'm about to do the thing I said I was going to do 500 years ago. I'm actually about to bring to fruition this promise that I made 500 years ago. To Abraham. God is taking Israel to this land. This land geographically, but this land promissorily. It's already theirs by God's promise. It's just not theirs geographically yet. They're not there. They don't possess it. God is taking Israel to this land. You do know, Christian, that God is taking you to a land. We just sang about it. Right? He's taking you to a land. He's taking you to a place, a very specific place that with, with boundary markers that, that's, that will belong to you until 
Christ returns and, and the new creation, it'll be with him in heaven. But, but once Christ returns and establishes his kingdom fully and finally in the new creation, that the new heavens, the new earth, that is our place. That is our destination. That is where we're going. He's actually taking us somewhere. Not any old somewhere, but somewhere specific, somewhere particular. We, like them, will inherit a place one day in the new creation. God says to Israel, this land. But he also says this land is your land. It's clear that God is taking his people to, um, to Israel, to, to Canaan, uh, and that he's going to give them that land. And to do so, he's going to have to remove, he's going to have to drive out the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, all the ites. And I hope you notice, I actually stumbled over it once or twice. Because as I was reading it out loud, it, it dawned on me that it wasn't as easy to read out loud as I had anticipated but look, for example, in verses 28, 29, 30. Drive out from before you. He's going to give them this land. It is going to be theirs. You see in verse 30. I'm going to drive them out before you until you have increased and you possess the land. This land is going to belong to Israel. However, there's a catch. It's not a catch. It just feels like a catch. It feels it feels to us like um I don't know, like a catch, I guess. It's not going to happen the way you think it should. It's not going to take place in your timing. It's not going to go the way you want it to go. It's not the way it's not going to go the way you think it should go. This land is your land and it's going to be your land. However, verse 29 and 30, I I I trust, I almost hope just for my own safety and security and camaraderie. I almost hope that verses 29 and 30 frustrates you. I'm not going to do this in a year. Little by little. Have you ever thought about how little we want God to work little by little? I mean, have you ever noticed that little by little is annoying? Right? We get frustrated with little by little. We want all now. I, it's true, right, that we want God to save us and, and immediately, promptly, completely rid me of my sin. But what we really want is for God to do that in my spouse and in my kids and the people around me. God works normally, little by little. It's, it's rare that you get all in a moment. Because think about it. He's about, he's promising to Israel that I'm about to fulfill a promise that's already 500 years old. And for that matter, the border given in this passage, Israel won't have until Solomon's day. 
it's going to take another 600 years before they get to that boundary. And even then, it doesn't seem to last very long. The timing for Israel doesn't really bother us. It's when he works little by little in us. It's when he works little by little in the people around us. That's what troubles us. That's what bothers us. We kind of go, I mean, okay, so it took 500 years to get to this point, another 500 years to get to the boundaries listed in this path. Like, that's no skin off our back. Except for the fact that that's evidence that we should be prepared for little by little. A bit at a time. A little here, a little there. Even as, as I mean, we, we have a confession of sin in our worship service. Why? Because God works little by little, not all at once. If God worked all at once, we could take that out. And we could sing another song. We could do something else instead. But precisely because God works little by little, we have a confession of sin. We still wrestle with anger. Anger. We still look lustfully at someone who isn't our spouse. We still, we still want to... The, Covet the possessions of other people. We still worship ourselves. We worship money, our our possessions, our stuff. Whatever the case may be. Instead of the one true God. We still sin even as Christians. That's how sanctification works. That's how our spiritual growth works. Sanctification. Big fancy five syllable word. For spiritual growth. Um, Don't let the five syllables throw you off. We grow little by little. Is this Israel's land? Yes. Do they have it all yet? No. And they won't for a few hundred years. God has all sorts of reasons for working slowly. Sometimes here he's working slowly for the sake of the land and for the people. Because if if I drive them out suddenly, then you got this beast problem and you got the land problem. The land becomes desolate because you're not in there to, to plow and prepare and whatever and harvest and reap. And so I need them there to kind of do the work that you're going to benefit from. There's that. Sometimes he works slowly for other reasons. This land is your land. But then God also reminds them, this land is my land. It's yours, but it's mine. Notice the way they gain possession of the land. Just just glance through and pay attention to all the action verbs. There sure is a whole bunch of God's sovereignty defeating the enemies and Israel gaining the benefit for it. I I don't hear, I don't hear, um, let's, you know, develop an army, choose some generals, y'all come up with a plan, figure it out, and you decide where the best places to invade this land would be, and we'll go with, no, God's, God's doing the work. God's doing all the sovereign activity of removing the enemies so that his people can have the land. Look at verse 20. 
I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Let me remind you, though, this is no ordinary angel. Did you notice how he is described in verse 21? Don't rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. I'm sorry. Angels don't have the right to forgive. The Pharisees understood this, right? The scribes understood this. There's there's a scene in Jesus' life when a paralytic, his friends want to take him to see Jesus and they can't get into the house, so they tear a hole in the roof and they lower him down through the roof. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Your sins are forgiven. Now, there's a part of me that if I'm in the room, I'm thinking... That guy just missed the point. But the religious leaders understood what just happened. Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Why? Because only God can forgive sin. And they're right. Only God can forgive sin. They weren't wrong about that. They were wrong about Jesus. They weren't wrong about the blasphemy part. Who has the right to forgive sin? God alone does. Angels don't have that power. Angels don't have that right. Besides, the end of verse 21, my name is in him. Some of you will will remember Roy Hubbard, who uh, used to be the RUF campus minister at Alabama A&M, left Six years ago-ish now, um, to go be on staff uh, at a church in St. Louis. He's actually now the, the lead pastor there. Um, at, at one of our presbytery meetings, um, if you don't know what that word means, is buy me a cup of coffee, I'll explain. Um, uh, at one of our presbytery meetings, not long after Roy had left, um, I went to get my name tag. I still didn't have a name tag. I was here for several years before I had a name tag at Presbytery. I just was feeling left out. So I put on Roy's and decided that would work. Sent a picture. I said, I'll be Roy. Um, wearing Roy's name tag doesn't make me Roy Hubbard. I've got the picture still, actually. It went by on my computer not too long ago. Um, wearing his name tag doesn't make me Roy Hubbard. Because for you and me, a name on somebody is really just, you know, you've got your name tag and that's kind of... But we've, we're not that far removed from the third commandment. Okay, we are. Because I'm your preacher. So we're, we're way far removed from the third commandment. They're not that far removed from the third commandment. They understand that name isn't just the word by which people in a crowd get your attention. They understand that name is character. Name is authority. Name is power. Name is, is, is who you are. This angel has the power and the right to forgive or not sin and bears God's name. Do you see who this is? This is Jesus. This is a, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Christ. It's Christophany, if you want the fancy term, there's the fancy language for those of you that are into that sort of thing. 
Jesus is the one leading the people, guarding the people into the promised land. It's a pre it's an appearance of the the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. He's the one who's going to take them safely into this new land. He's the one that's going to take them safely onto across through Jordan, the Jordan River. And notice verse 27 and 28. God's going to send my terror before you. I'm going to throw them into confusion. I'm going to send hornets. Okay, maybe actually hornets, maybe a plague of hornets, maybe an army. There was actually an Egyptian army that had a hornet as its standard. And so that might have, um, you know, that might be kind of what's going on here. The, the point is, for our sake, I can't control hornets. Boy, if I could control hornets. Sometimes I might be tempted to misuse them, but I would gladly get rid of them. I don't have that. God is the one who's doing the work. God is the one who's giving this land to his people. He's the one establishing the boundary markers of this land. You can't read this passage and ignore God's sovereign grace and mercy to his people. God is sovereignly delivering his people into this new land. This land, it's your land, but this land is my land in the way that you receive it. But it's also my land, God says, in the way you dwell in it. Notice there's a condition. There's, a, there's an if-then. There's a conditional clause. There's an if-then statement. There actually are two of them. In verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that, it, that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Down in verse 33, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, then it will surely be a snare to you. They're basically the same if then statement. Looking at heads and tails of the same coin. Approaching the same thing from opposite directions. If you will obey my voice. If you will, will live to honor and glorify me. If you, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you will glorify me and enjoy me in this new land. Then I will guard and protect you. If however you give yourself to them. It will be a snare to you. We know how that turns out, right? We, we, know, we know Israel fails. That's why Assyria. That's why Babylon. That's why there's, there's exile and destruction and defeat. That's why. And yet, there is also Ezra. There is also Nehemiah. The people do, will return. They won't eliminate their enemies. They'll let too many of them remain. They will seek after the gods of these inhabitants. But let me remind you of God's patience. It's going to take hundreds and hundreds of years. It's going to take 600 years or so before Assyria comes and defeats Israel. 
Why? Because God is, yes, he's just. Yes, he is going to judge sin, but he's a patient judge. In fact, that's why Israel is not yet in the promised land. Turn back to Genesis 15. I should have told you you would need it again. In Genesis 15, we find out why God didn't just all at once, hey, Abraham, let's go now. We get that answer in Genesis 15. Look at verse 16. They, so God tells Abraham, by the way, your descendants are going to spend 400 years as slaves in a foreign country. We're on the back end of that. Uh, When, but I will get them, I'll take them out. Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's that's years. That's 400 years of patiently waiting until the guilt of the Amorites is where it should be, until it's time to judge the Amorites. God is just and He will and must judge sin, but God is a patient judge even to the ites. Not just to the Israelites, but the Amorites and all the others in the land. So the condition is, this land is God's land in the way that they inherit it, the way they possess it, but also in the way that they live in it. Look at verses 24 and 25. It's the first three commandments, right? Uh, Where's verse 24? I can't find verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from all. It's a command to serve, honor, glorify God and Him alone, so much so that they destroy every vestige, every every remaining piece of this pagan idol worship. No child sacrifices, no sinful sexual practice as a part of worship. There should be no evidence whatsoever of the old gods, of the old worship practices when you come into the land. The condition given is that Israel is commanded to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If they'll fulfill man's chief end in this new land. For that matter, there's, there's purity commands in verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and, and their gods. You're not going to enter into these covenant relationships with these foreigners and their God. God wants, expects, and rightly deserves wholehearted (coughs) devotion to Him. It's a call to purity. This land is theirs. It's, It's Israel's, but it's also God's in the way that He gives it to them and in the way that they are to live in it. God tells to Israel, this land is your land. This land is my land. What does that have to do with us? 
Let me make three applications from this passage. The first is this. God promised victory to these Old Testament saints through the messenger, the angel, the pre-incarnate Christ. Is that not our victory? They have victory through the, the person and work of Jesus. Is that not our victory? Is that not our hope? Do we not have victory through the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ? We have the advantage of living after the fact, but our salvation, our deliverance, the promise is grounded in the same person, the same one who accomplished the work on our behalf. They won because of his work. We win because of his work. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'd love to have a theology English grammar conversation about what happens if you replace it with the word more instead of less. I mean, besides rhyming with righteousness, but that's another conversation for another day. Our hope is built on nothing less than the blood and righteousness of Jesus. A second um, application, uh, we've already at least alluded to the little by little rather than the all at once of our own spiritual growth. It's true that there are times when God will add 3,000 to the church in one moment like you see in Acts 2. Like you see throughout uh, a variety of revivals throughout the last 2,000 years. But God normally works little by little. He normally works to, to build His church, to build His kingdom, slowly but surely. And we have a promise that from Jesus' own lips... I'll build my church. And the very gates of hell itself cannot, will not prevail against it. Do you hear it? Jesus, Jesus can't lose. He, he can't lose. His kingdom is growing. It's, it's expanding and there are borders. That's really how evangelism works, right? More and more people becoming subjects of King Jesus. But the reality is there's coming a day when there are no borders. There's no more stake in the ground. You can't go out to some corner and find a GPS point and say, here's where it starts. And if I turn and I walk this far, this many feet, then I'll get to the other one. And, and this is where Jesus' territory is. No, there's coming a day when there are no boundary markers whatsoever on Christ's kingdom. Christ shall have dominion. Over land and sea. Earth's remotest region. Shall his empire be. That's the, the corporate. The church application. The second. The third application is to you as the individual. You know. Um, we have a garden. I, we have a garden. Don't you love that? Um, because we're married and we have the same last name, we have a garden. 
What I really mean is I, I, I one time screwed four boards together and, and Nancy then had a garden, except that those boards are now rotten and I'm pretty sure she replaced the boards that are there. So now really Nancy has a garden. If you have a garden, um, there, there's, there comes a point at which uh, during the summer um, you go out there a lot. Like you go out there and look and like you and you clean stuff, you kind of water, you check your um, squash plant starts to bust out through the top of the soil. You don't complain. I find this fascinating. Right. We don't complain. Hey, look, a little bit of a squash plant. We don't complain. We actually get excited. Like it's alive. It's actually growing. It's actually starting to go. You can't eat that. Like, that's not squash. But you get excited about that little bit of growth. See, that's Zechariah 4.10, which tells us don't despise the day of small things, the day of small beginnings. We get frustrated that God doesn't sanctify me in a moment. Rejoice that there's evidence of sanctification. Because the reality is, as soon as you grow a little bit, you realize, I had further to grow than I thought I did. I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Little by little is how we grow as God's people. Rather than complain that it takes so long, may we instead rejoice that he's at work in us at all. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank you for the sure and certain hope and promise that you are absolutely at work in your people. May we rejoice at the glimpses of, of evidence of your grace in our lives. May we rejoice not that we are better but that your grace is real and that your grace is sufficient. Would you point us to our victor, uh, our king, our ruler, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has by his work made sure and certain our hope of the life to come. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen.